0: This is The Rounds Table. Hello, Rounds Table listeners. Welcome back. Today, we have a very special guest recording with us today. Uh, We have Dr. Emily Hughes, who has been featured on the podcast before. Um, I'm very happy to welcome her back.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Justin. Really excited to be back with you on the air. And now I'm extra excited because you and I are co-residents in the GIM Fellowship Program. So excited to chat with you on the air and work with you on the wards.
0: I can say the same as well. I'm very excited. Uh, so today, what do you have for us?
1: So I'll be covering an article that was actually just published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it's titled Xyla Becerin, an RNA Interference Therapeutic Agent for Hypertension. It was published by Akshay Desai et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine and first online on July 20th, 2023. So it's truly hot off the press.
0: Very hot, very spicy. What's the research question?
1: Well, the research question that they looked at was, what is the safety and blood pressure lowering effect of xylabacirin, which is an investigational RNA interference therapeutic agent that inhibits the production of angiotensinogen? And I know that's a mouthful, but we will dive right into it.
0: I think I'll need a repeat physiology <laughs> overview. Uh, why is the study important?
1: Well, you're so in luck, Justin, because I'm just about to give you a repeat physiology overview, because I also needed that when I first uh, took a look at this article. So let's just take a step back for a second. So first, we know that nearly half of patients with hypertension don't meet guideline-based blood pressure targets, and novel agents are needed. Now, we all know the RAS system well, and for those of you listening, just need a quick refresher on the RAS system, like I definitely did before reading this article. Um, We all know it's the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And there's actually lots of blood pressure medications already on the market that target this system. So I'll just go through it briefly. So first off, the liver produces angiotensinogen, which is converted by renin into angiotensin-1. We then get the angiotensin converting enzyme or ACE enzyme that converts angiotensin-1 into angiotensin-2. Angiotensin II then goes off and acts on many different parts of the human body, essentially to lower blood pressure. So how does this actually work? So we know that ACE inhibitors, for example, one class of antihypertensive agents, act on the ACE enzyme, which then stops the downstream effects of angiotensin. We know that angiotensin receptor blockade, or ARBs, also act on downstream aspects of this pathway. Other common antihypertensive agents like MRAs or mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists or spironolactone as we know them uh, also acts on downstream steps in this pathway. So I was very intrigued by this new thing therapeutic agent, xylabacirin, which acts very upstream and actually stops the production of the very first molecule in this pathway. So it stops the production of angiotensinogen. But there's a couple key differences that caught my eye about this medication and how it's administered, which could make it particularly attractive for use in certain populations. So number one, this medication is given as a single dose with prolonged effects that with that single dose. And it's expected to last for up to 24 weeks with just one dose. And this actually makes sense, right? Because it's not transiently blocking the receptor or enzyme for a given target in the RAS pathway, it's actually blocking the production of a precursor molecule to the whole pathway responsible for elevating blood pressure. So as such, this medication offers a more constant reduction in blood pressure than a once or twice daily dosing of our usual blood pressure meds. This could actually help our patients stay within blood pressure target more often and avoid diurnal variations in blood pressure that we have with our typical blood pressure agents that are already on the market. Practically speaking, it could also be a great option for certain patients who have difficulty with adherence to daily or several times daily medications. And next, it's given as an injection. This could be advantageous in certain patient populations who maybe can't swallow, have gut malabsorptive conditions, or maybe have difficulty with adherence with oral medications. So I was really intrigued and excited to see the results.
0: Wow, this sounds like a very interesting medication with really many different indications that I think could be beneficial in the populations that we see. Uh, What was their study design?
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. It was a four-part, multi-center, phase one study, which assessed the safety and blood pressure-lowering effects of the medication xylabasram in adults less than 65 with treated or untreated hypertension. So 107 patients were enrolled. In part A, patients were randomly assigned to a single subcutaneous dose of xylabeseran at one of seven doses, sort of ranging from 10 milligrams to 800 milligrams, or they got placebo. And then in part B, xylabeseran, or placebo, was administered under low and high-salt dietary conditions.
0: All right. and what outcomes were they looking for?
1: So, because this was a phase one clinical trial, the primary endpoint was frequency of adverse events. Secondary endpoints were the change from baseline in the serum angiotensinogen level and pharmacokinetic characteristics. The exploratory endpoints included changes from baseline in systolic and diastolic blood pressure as measured by 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring.
0: Interesting. And do they have any anticipated adverse events going into the trial apart from things like hypotension, for example?
1: Yeah, so they looked at some similar endpoints for adverse events as we would for other medications that act on the RAS pathway. So they looked at things like um, hyper or hypokalemia. They also looked at renal function. And they also looked at um, liver enzyme elevation.
0: I see. And what did their patient population look like?
1: So it was a pooled population of 107 patients. The mean age was 53 and a half years. 62% of the population were men, 25% were black, and the mean 24 hours systolic blood pressure entering the trial was 140 millimeters mercury.
0: Sweet, and what were the results?
1: Yeah, so I, I think, you know, this patient population really demonstrated in the inclusion criteria, a pretty typical population that I might see, for example, in the clinic. Maybe it was a little bit younger than a patient that I would typically see um, on the internal medicine wards, but I still think that the patients they included look like patients that I see in my clinical practice, so it would make sense. So the main results can really be broken down into the safety endpoints and then the efficacy endpoints. So in terms of safety, which again was the primary motivation of this trial because it was a first-in-human trial, First, they looked at overall adverse events. And overall, adverse events were not more frequent with xylobaceran than with placebo. There were five patients in the xylobaceran group that had mild transient injection site reactions. There were no patients um, that had hypotension, hyperkalemia, or worsening of renal function. And then in terms of the efficacy endpoints, uh, which, again, were exploratory in this trial, In part A, a single dose of xylabacirin of greater than 200 milligrams were associated with dose-dependent decreases in blood pressure, and these were apparent by week eight and were sustained for up to 24 weeks. In part B, a high-salt diet appeared to attenuate the blood pressure-lowering effects of xylabacirin.
0: Interesting. And within these results, were there any limitations?
1: Yeah. So again, like this was a phase one clinical trial, so the study was too small, and too short to fully assess safety. It only went to 24 weeks, and there were only 107 participants included. And practically speaking, if the results for efficacy without limiting safety effects do hold up in phase two and phase three clinical trials, I think the patient population who would use this drug would need to be very carefully selected. So. As you know and as I know, doing lots of inpatient medicine, I really see profound hypotension often. Whether it's the result of hypovolemia, cardiac events, various etiologies resulting in shock like sepsis or other, I worry a little bit about a drug that could blunt a body's physiologic ability to activate the RAS system and raise blood pressure when activation of RAS to raise blood pressure is very appropriate. So it makes me hope that a quick reversal agent is actually being developed simultaneously. And then less so a limitation, but more so a general caution when interpreting this trial is I think it's really important to remember when interpreting the results for this trial that it is a phase one clinical trial and it's really just designed to assess tolerability. From serious adverse events and not actually efficacy so we're still really far off from seeing this approved to be administered on hospital wards and in clinics.
0: That is very fair. And I mean, so far it sounds really intriguing and promising. Um, What do you think the final take home point is then from this phase one trial?
1: I think the take home point is that Xyla is a promising first in class agent in the pipeline that could actually represent a novel clinically important therapeutic agent for hypertension in a carefully selected patient population.
0: All right. And as an extension, would this be practice changing?
1: Well, definitely not yet. So As I mentioned, this is a phase one clinical trial. And just to remind ourselves what exactly that means, a phase one clinical trial is a study of a new drug that's usually the first to involve humans. Phase one trials are done with a relatively small sample size to find the highest dose of a new treatment that can be given safely without causing severe adverse effects. So it will be really critically important to see the phase two and phase three trials, which will focus on efficacy endpoints. For example, is the drug actually working how we want it to work, while also looking for safety signals in the larger population. So I'm actually really looking forward to seeing the results of the phase two and phase three clinical trials, because I think that this phase one trial is certainly promising.
0: I agree completely. It's exciting to see uh, new medications being developed for things that we treat and manage daily.
1: Absolutely. Uh, So with that said, Justin, I'm really excited to hear the study that you chose to present today. And I saw this even hotter off the press than my article. Um, So can you introduce to our listeners what you'll be talking to us about?
0: For sure. Today, I'll be talking about a paper that was actually published this month, uh, August 2023, in Nedjim. It's entitled Semaglutide in Patients with Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction in Obesity, coined STEP-HFPEF, and it was authored by Borod et al.
1: So you're trying to tell me that semaglutide has another indication?
0: The list continues to grow.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. And what is the research question they specifically asked in this study?
0: So in this study, they asked whether once-weekly semaglutide at a dose of 2.4 milligrams might lead to reductions in symptoms and physical limitations and to improved exercise function in addition to weight loss in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and obesity.
1: Awesome. And I can already think of so many reasons why this might be important, but can you break it down for our listeners?
0: For sure, so this is important because heart failure with preserved ejection fraction accounts for more than half of all cases of heart failure within the United States and within a North American context and the majority of persons with this condition uh, can also be overweight and have obesity and there's growing evidence that suggests that there's a connection between obesity and excess adiposity and that these may play a role in the development and progression of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And so really it's important for us to examine different types of medications and whether or not the use of pharmacotherapies in general that specifically target things like obesity can reduce symptoms and physical limitations and improve exercise function in patients that do have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction.
1: Great, and how did they design this study? Yes.
0: Yeah, so it was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial, and it was conducted at 96 sites in 13 countries in Asia, Europe, North, and South America. So it was quite an expansive study, and participants were randomly assigned in a one-to-one ratio with the use of an interactive web-based response system. And essentially, they were randomized to receive once-weekly subcutaneous semaglutide at a dose of 2.4 milligrams or placebo for 52 weeks and were followed uh, within a five-week follow-up period. And essentially, the randomization was further stratified according to their baseline BMI, so whether it was greater than 35 or less than 35, And uh, it's important to note that the semaglutide treatment was initiated at a dose of 0.25 milligrams once weekly for the first four weeks. And the dose was then slowly escalated thereafter every four weeks with the aim of reaching the maintenance dose of 2.4 milligrams by week 16. And ultimately, participants who discontinued treatment prematurely remained in the trial as intention to treat. With respect to the inclusion criteria for this study, so persons older than the age of 18 were eligible to participate if they had a left ventricular ejection fraction of at least 45%, a BMI of at least 30, an NYHA functional class of two, three, or four, and a Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire score of less than 90 points. And so this is a validated score that essentially assesses both the psychosocial and physical effects of heart failure from a symptom burden perspective. And so a high score of 100 points indicates fewer symptoms and physical limitations, and a score that's closer to zero indicates a higher burden of symptoms. Um, And so these are sort of the main inclusion criteria that were included within this study. Uh, With respect to exclusion criteria, um, so essentially um, the main ones were patient-reported change in body weight of more than 5 kilograms within 90 days before screening, and a history of diabetes. Um, So essentially having a hemoglobin A1c of greater 6.5 percent based on medical record data within three months before screening or on a local laboratory value at the time of screening Um, and otherwise patients were excluded if they had a known medical history of diabetes otherwise
1: and what outcomes did they look at
0: yes so with respect to outcomes they had dual primary endpoints which were one the change in their kansas city cardiomyopathy questionnaire score and the percentage uh, change in body weight from baseline to week 52. And like I mentioned, this questionnaire is essentially a way for them to record symptom improvement and burden. And then beyond that, they also had secondary endpoints, which were essentially improvement in your six-minute walk test from baseline to week 52. And they also had a hierarchical composite endpoint that included death, heart failure events, and differences in their symptom burden and their six-minute walk test, compared within the semaglutide receiving group and then the placebo receiving group. Gotcha. And finally, (laughs) with respect to their stats, they followed an intention to treat analysis. Awesome.
1: And what did the patients who ended up being included in the trial look like?
0: Yes. So essentially, the demographic and baseline clinical characteristics of the participants were quite balanced between the groups. Um, So most of the participants were women at 56.1 percent, and the majority of patients were white at 95.8 percent. And the median age between the placebo and the semaglutide group was 69 years. And they had quite equivalent median body weight um, and BMI of 105.1 kilograms and 37.0, respectively and um, an equal proportion of them had a BMI of 35 or higher. They also had a similar symptom burden per the Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire.
1: Okay, and Justin, just so that I understand, really they were looking at a primary endpoint of symptoms, not a primary endpoint of cardiovascular events or mortality, is that correct?
0: That is correct.
1: Okay, can you take us through the results?
0: Yes, so with respect to their uh, dual primary endpoints, uh, the first being their symptom burden. So essentially the mean change in this questionnaire was 16.6 points with semaglutide and 8.7 points with placebo um, with an estimated difference of being 7.8 points. And the mean percentage change in body weight was minus 13.3% with semaglutide and minus 2.6% with placebo. So it does appear, though, that there was a significant change in both symptom burden and weight loss if you did receive semaglutide compared to not. With respect to the secondary endpoint, there was an improvement in your six minute walk distance uh, using semaglutide compared to placebo. So twenty one point five meters versus one point two meters. And then beyond that, this hierarchical composite endpoint uh, that I referenced before, if you received semaglutide, you had more wins than placebo, with meaning that essentially using semaglutide improved your capacity to undergo symptom benefit with respect to this questionnaire, your six minute walk distance, and then the composite of death, heart failure events, et cetera.
1: Great. That was an awesome summary, Justin. Any limitations to this study?
0: Yes. So in my opinion, I think that there are several limitations to consider. And so first, going back to Table 1, the number of non-white participants was significantly low. And I think that this may ultimately limit the generalizability of the results when thinking about a larger population of patients that we see with heart failure. Beyond that, like you mentioned, Emily, the trial was designed primarily to evaluate the effects of semaglutide on symptoms, physical limitations, and exercise function, and was not actually adequately powered to evaluate clinical events such as hospitalizations for heart failure or urgent care visits, for example. And so I think that this would be interesting to study in further trials upcoming. With you on that,
1: Justin, you know, whenever I see a big cardiovascular trial, I wanna see hard endpoints primarily like decreasing cardiovascular events, um, decreasing hospitalizations, lengths of stay mortality. So I'm actually quite surprised that they chose the primary endpoints they did. So I completely agree with you that um, I'd like to see another trial evaluating for those endpoints.
0: I agree completely. And beyond that, I think a couple other limitations to consider would be that the duration of follow-up was limited to one year. And so I think that even though the trajectory on symptom improvement, their six-minute walk distance and weight loss indicated greater persistent improvements over time with semaglutide, I think that examining the durability of these effects beyond one year cannot necessarily be ascertained at this point in time. And an interesting point would be that the data on their A1C levels was not actually collected at baseline or during follow-up. And so it's actually uncertain if any of these patients had developed diabetes throughout the context of the study. And so um, it's unlikely that they did, but if some of these participants did actually develop diabetes, then it would be actually harder to determine if the benefits on their overall symptom burden and health was from the diabetes management versus uh, the obesity management in the context of half-path And then I think finally, um, Since this study was uh, initiated, uh, the Emperor-Preserve trial came out, and so now SGLT2 inhibitors are becoming a standard of care in this patient population. And so within this study, however, uh, there was not a large proportion of patients on SGLT2 inhibitors, which I think reflects just when this study was initiated. So there are upcoming studies that will look at the combination of SGLT2 inhibitors with GLP-1 agonists. And so I think that data would be interesting to examine.
1: I totally agree taking the results as well as the limitations into account, what's your take-home point?
0: So my take-home point is that in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and obesity, treatment with once-weekly semaglutide at a dose of 2.4 milligrams led to a larger reduction in heart failure-related symptoms and physical limitations, greater improvement in exercise function, and greater weight loss than placebo.
1: Would this change your practice?
0: I really think that this is practice affirming, and rather than being practice changing specifically. I think that, uh, like we mentioned at the beginning, there's a growing list of reasons to prescribe ozempic or semaglutide to patients. And I think that beyond the study not actually having really hard cardiovascular endpoints, I think that doing anything we can to improve the quality of life of the symptoms of the patients that we care for is incredibly important. And so I think that if I was to care for a patient that had an elevated BMI, and HALF-PATH, I would definitely not hesitate to prescribe a GLP-1 agonist or semaglutide to them just to help with their overall functional status.
1: I agree with you. Okay, well, thanks so much for taking us through that article, Justin. That was really interesting. Um, Now, one of my favorite parts of the show is the good stuff segment. What are you going to tell us about this week?
0: So with being back in Toronto, I'm super excited for TIFF. I haven't gone in quite some time, and I'm also a really big Hayao Miyazaki fan. And so he actually has a film that uh, will be showcased at TIFF, and it's his first movie in 10 years. It's called The Boy and the Heron, and ticket sales open on August 28th. So hopefully I'll be able to secure some. Uh, So I think that's really the good stuff for today,
1: something to look forward to. That's awesome. What a high note to leave the episode on. Thank you so much for having me, Justin, and I hope to be back.
0: Thank you so much. Have a good afternoon. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia-Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha,
1: editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.